Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 739 for August 15th, 2022. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. Well, a few years ago, when the SMR podcast host took over the NoSillaCast while I was on vacation, Tom Merritt of the Daily Tech News Show called it the crossover event of the summer. Since then, the SMR hosts Rod, Chris, and Rob have all been on DTNS. Then Tom had Bodie Grimm of the Kilowatt podcast on his show. So Bodie and I got to be friends, and the crossovers just keep on coming. In this year's crossover event of the summer, Bodie Grimm interviews two gentlemen from a company called Orange Charger. Founder Nicholas Johnson and product manager and strategist Joseph Nagel talked to Bodie about their vision to bring affordable and convenient electric vehicle charging to multi-unit properties like apartments and condominiums. It's a fascinating discussion of what people think they need and want versus what they actually need in a home charger in an apartment complex. You can learn more about Orange Charger at orangecharger.com, and please be sure to subscribe to the Kilowatt Podcast because Bodie is awesome. Thanks, Bodie, for letting us have this interview for Chit Chat Across the Pond. Nicholas and Joseph, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, um, I'm really excited to talk about our, our topic today, and we'll get into that in a second. But before we do that, I would like you both to introduce yourselves so everybody in podcast land can hear whose voice is whose. And I'll start with Joseph. Yeah, I'm Joseph Nagel. I uh, work at Orange as uh, the head of marketing and, and working on some strategies with Nicholas. Uh, my background is pretty heavily involved in the EV charging and apartments uh, business and industry. Uh, so I've had about seven years experience uh, working with a company called Evercharge, and I've just joined here at Orange. Awesome. And how about you, Nicholas? Yeah, well, I'm the founder of Orange, um, and my background is I was a uh, Tesla engineer for a while working on Model 3 development and then left to start another company that uh, kind of led me to starting Orange about two years ago so that we can uh, get more people to drive electric vehicles who live in multifamily properties. Yeah, and during our pre-interview, we talked about this, but this was a question that I had from a listener back in March, like, how do people in apartments charge? And the answer I gave was was not a very satisfactory one, which is basically like there might be a few chargers and then you got to go do DC fast charging or level two charging somewhere else. So why don't we identify and I'll, I'll pose this to Nicholas first. Why don't we identify the issue facing EV owners in multi family communities? Yeah, it's really diverse. So I like to break it up kind of into structures. Um, you have like your smaller apartment complexes, like I say, duplexes to 20 units. And then you have different levels of ownership of those. So it's always a challenge of finding out who owns the property and or has decision-making power of the property to install something. And that's a challenge not just for charging. That's just a challenge of multifamilies and everything. And so charging is just another issue of like that's they've never dealt with. And so they're also uneducated a lot of the times on what it would take to even add charging to their property if somebody came asking for it. And then... Um, the way we look at it is you have HOAs. So you have like homeowners associations. That's one buy-in group for one type of ownership. You have, you know, the owner of a smaller apartment complex. They might own three or four buildings. And then you have like the large corporate, which own hundreds to thousands of buildings across the U.S. or internationally who invest institutional money to build multifamilies. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all problem. Um, but if you're a UV driver, it's even, you know, you don't know that normally because most people don't know about multifamily developments. And so when you're trying to get a charging installed, you don't always know who to go to or how to do it or what to ask. And so 
that's like one hurdle. And then the other hurdle is the people who you're asking often don't know what solutions there even are. And so when they go look, they end up looking at things and getting deterred by how expensive they are. And then it never happens. Or they do install a solution because they have partnerships and it's less optimal for the driver than the driver would have wanted because they were designed for a different market. And so we really started the company realizing that multifamily hadn't had any solutions really built specifically for it that solved the first two issues, which is like fundamental cost. It has to be affordable enough and convenience, which is like, it needs to be as convenient as home charging. And those were the two kind of criteria of how we looked at it. So if you're somebody who owns an EV, who lives in an apartment complex, you have that kind of same experience. Maybe you pay a little bit more, but not a lot more to charge your car than somebody who lives in a single family home. And so that was about bringing access, we call it, to electricity, not so much the whole charger, but like getting access to charging in your parking spot, ideally. So you have confidence you can charge your car, unlike a lot of solutions that you brought up, which was like shared charging. You see a lot of that. They might have two or three chargers. Once two or three people show up with EVs at that apartment complex, there might be 20 or 100 units, you're out of charging. And the last part that I think most people don't know a lot about and we can dive into that more, is panel capacity, which is the main limiting hurdle for everyone. Um, Even sometimes single-family homes, but definitely for multifamily, they were built most of the time in a period where they didn't expect electric cars to charge, and so they don't have the capacity in a lot of cases to add a lot of charging or to charge a lot of cars at those high power levels that we see for level two charging. Yeah, I I, I definitely uh, can see that as being a problem. Joseph, do you have anything to add to that before we go to the next question? Yeah, I think there's also a little bit like Nicholas touched on about, you know, there's a delicate balancing act that needs to happen, especially within a community for access to charging. Like the drivers need reliable access to EV charging uh, that's also affordable. And the community needs to ensure that that access is available to everyone. And so a lot of the communities like Nicholas touched on, and you mentioned yourself, is that they share these chargers. But once you start to hit like four or five vehicles, sharing one charging station is just not doable. I mean, four is probably way too much. Like three is barely doable. Uh, And then on top of that, like the building owner or whoever invested to put those stations in, they need to figure out a way to A, build the people and get reimbursed for that power because it's not free. Um, and so they need to find a, a way to get that money back uh, from the drivers. And then they also need to ensure that they're going to get some kind of return on their investment because it is a, a large capital expenditure. Uh, and a lot of times what, what uh, a lot of EV charging companies ask is that they just pour money into this thing and then it's never going to come back to them or it's going to take 20 years to come back to them, uh, which for a lot of building owners, especially if you're like a mid or small uh, company, like that's that's not an easy ask to say like, hey, if you put money in, maybe 20 years down the line, you're gonna get money back. So you have to kind of balance in all these factors to ensure that every single person in that scenario is getting what they need. One thing I kind of like to think about with that is like when we went to go pitch this and talk to a lot of multifamily owners, when you deal with the mid tier, which make up a lot of the properties across the US are like people who have bought a multifamily as an investment inst- instrument, that's an income property for them. And so when you go, hey, you want to spend 20 grand on installing charging, um, that's a really nice vacation or like to coming out of their profits. And so there, there's that's a hard ask, right? And so like even as a driver asking for that, you're probably going to get turned down. And even though that there are laws that like require in a lot of places charging, like you can't say no to someone installing charging now, doesn't require the property owner to pay for it. So you could say, I'll install charging and as a driver and I'll pay for it. And some drivers do that. I mean, I chose to do that, right? And uh, 
that's just, you know, I'm fortunate enough to do that. But for EVs to scale, like really hit mass, you need access to energy where you live. And so that's kind of what we've solved is we've built that model Joseph talked about, which was we looked at like building a profitability return on investment that has a four to six year kind of horizon, not a 20 year horizon for payback that doesn't gouge the driver. And the way we achieved that, and we can dive into that more, but like is the fact that we reduced the upfront install cost by 60% compared to say a charge point or ever charge where Nick Joseph used to work. My father-in-law used to work as an apartment manager. He retired and then he was like, I'm bored. So he went to work as an apartment manager. And I would imagine, because just knowing his frustration, because my father-in-law is a very type A anal personality, like if something's broke, it needs to get fixed now. And the place that he worked for anyway, I can't speak for every place, but the place that he worked for anywhere, worked for was like, there was always a lot of no's, um, even on the things that absolutely needed to get done by law. So um, I would imagine that going to some of these folks, it is a little bit of a challenge to to get a yes. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely going to be true, right? But there, there's a law now that says they can't stop you from in charging, right? So you could decide to pay for it. Um, but in the cases of they're paying for it, they can always say no, right? Like that's, that's their right as an owner of the building. And organizations have to be incentivized. So like what we looked at with Orange was making sure we had that incentive. So when we go pitch our product to, you know, these property developers, we go in looking at their needs and one of their needs is a return on investment. And so like, it's a lot easier to get someone to install something, especially something new technologically that has, you know, a small user base. Cause right now we're just passing, I'd say here in San Mateo, we're at 8.2% of EVs on the road. So like you go to them and say, I want EV charge, install our EV charging. And they go, well, there's only 8.2% of people that we could potentially be renters to our place that will have an EV. So no, um, as that number gets greater, they'll have more need for it. And then they'll start to look at like options. And we already are seeing that with some of the larger institutional in- investors. They're looking at right now creating strategy for EV at a national scale across their portfolios so that they have solutions in place. And one of the key things for them is return on investment. Because again, their business model is they're taking someone else's money and they're spending it to build these properties. And so if they go blow, let's say, you know, $10 million next year installing charging across their portfolio and it doesn't have a payback period, that looks really bad for them. And in fact, some of them might even just get fired. Like they're, they're investors that invest in them will be like, hey, you guys are doing a bad job. Why are you installing this expensive charging? So that was like really key to figure out for us was how to make it attractive to get those people that would normally say no because they don't want to do anything or they don't see a value prop to themselves to overcome that and get them to say yes. Okay, so we've danced around this a little bit, but uh, what is Orange's solution to this problem then? Yeah, so um, we're a platform. So coming back to kind of what Joseph hinted at, we manage the payment, the networking, and then we also created our own hardware that reduces the installation cost by rethinking what we call what drivers actually need versus what they believe they're are marketed they need. And so we sell currently um, what we call level one and level two outlets. The level one outlet is a standard 120 outlet and our level two outlet is a 240 volt outlet. And the rationale based off these, what people would say slow charging is that we're installing in locations where people spend eight to 10 hours a day. Hopefully they're getting eight hours of sleep, um, eating dinner and enjoying their family and friends. But like that was the structure of how we built our product. So knowing the use case, we were able to rethink how much power we needed at each stall, each parking spot. 
And so we could reduce the install cost by reducing the hardware complexity. The other thing is we're an outlet, not a full-blown level two charger with a 20-foot cable or a giant pedestal and cable management. Um, and by doing that, we reduced a lot of the hardware cost and install cost associated with current chargers. So we inevitably are about 60% less, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on install electrician cost. Nationally, it varies. Um, but in general, that's the thing that gets us to a lower upfront capex. And then we've reduced by kind of optimizing around structures of how we do payments, because again, we're isolating, we're not doing public payments. We're able to aggregate a lot of data and payments. So we reduce our, what I call transactional cost. Uh, so we reduce our operating cost for the property as well. We pass that savings on so that they can actually have a profitable charging solution that offers more charging. And one thing people don't always think about that we have to really sell is if you have, let's say those three shared chargers on your property, even if you're a bigger Hartman complex, people are bad at moving their cars. So you're actually losing money while someone's car is sitting there not charging throughout the night. And so by breaking up, let's say a level two charger into our, what we call a NEMA 620 outlet, which is our 240 volt, 20 amp outlet into two or four spots, right? For that same power that you have in the building, you've now offering charging to four more people than you would have had one person. And so the idea is kind of taking a step back and understanding drivers. We're not filling up cars, we're topping off cars. So every night you're getting your 40 to 50 miles you drove that day back. And you you probably, EV drivers know, you set your car to like 80% or 90%. You never really charge it to that 100%. And then you basically are just playing between like 20 and 80, 50 and 80. Uh, and so you're just thinking about topping up. And so having access to it conveniently every night, you're able to top up every night. And so that allowed us to do a slower charger as well, which reduced an install cost and offer more people charging because we're utilizing the panel capacity better. And you actually make more money that way because now you're serving four people who over that night are all pulling 24 or 36 kilowatt hours to charge their car for their next daily commute. So Joseph, walk us through what this looks like for just a regular consumer who's, who, we have an apartment, we have an EV. What are, What's the process for me or you to charge as an apartment dweller with Orange? Well, so if your property already has Orange, uh, it's actually quite simple. You probably already have uh, access to those uh, outlets. Um, our outlets come with a QR code right on the front. Uh, you download our app, you scan the code, uh, and then you can start the charging session uh, right then and there. Um, and it's really that simple. Uh, to 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 do this with Orange. Um, if your apartment doesn't have Orange, uh, then it gets a little bit more complicated because you're going to have to kind of work around some of these systems that we sort of touched on before. You, you probably have to talk to the property manager. The property manager is probably going to talk to the property owner. Or if it's a large, uh, you know, uh, investment property, uh, something like a Graystar or something like that, of that nature, like very large, uh, that's going to probably have to go up to like a corporate level. Uh, and so it starts to get a little bit more tricky uh, from that point on. But the, the thing that most people should be doing is if you have an EV and you don't have charging is to start talking about it now um, and start looking into ways to get charging into your building and, and what kind of access you have. Because there are a lot of hurdles like with Nicholas touched on. There's panel capacity issues. There's uh, supply, power supply issues. There's a lot of different things that you need to start to consider. Um, and it is a process. So to start early is something that everyone should do. Okay. And then, Nicholas, how many uh, chargers are we looking at, uh, orange chargers, are we looking at installing in your average, uh, let's say, large complex? We're not looking at every single spot, right? How many are we looking at? Yeah. So we kind of actually base that number 
off of the Bloomberg prediction for like EV adoption over the next decade. And so because we're looking at infrastructure, we, we call it a 10-year lifespan. We say that anything you install infrastructure needs to at least last 10 years to justify its you know upfront expenditure. And so if you're going to do an install, we recommend about 30 to 35% of the parking spots have some level of access to charging so that you can meet demand as it grows. Um, you could start with less and just make sure you have capacity built in. For new constructions, we usually recommend they add capacity for 50 to 60% of the parking spots, but they don't install that day one. They install that five years and 10 years down the road, but they've reduced the CapEx again for those later because retrofits are more expensive. But yeah, in general, um, let's say for a hundred unit apartment complex, we'd usually install about 25 to 30 outlets. Okay, that's good to know. And then you you talked about um, panel access, like is the panel big enough to support this? And I realize not everybody's going to be able to charge at the same time. What kind of uh, features does Orange have to, to keep everyone from hitting that panel at the same time, if there is any? So the way we're structured is lower power. So we initially give everybody access to power when they want it, when they need it, but they also know it's slower. So it becomes habitual. One of the things with the higher power charging that does connectivity and figuring out load balancing is it's more unpredictable to the driver somewhat. And then the other one is it's more expensive because you're now still paying for infrastructure that you're only utilizing when only one or two people are charging, not when 10 people are charging. So our solution doesn't initially say like, oh, we're going to install a hundred amps. We're going to install, you know, 20 outlets. Therefore, like those 20 outlets will share that hundred amps. They all can use it simultaneously. The reason our solution scales is the fact that we are a lower power solution initially. And so that means you can add more of them for less money than say like a level two 40 amp charger. Yeah, and I think just to piggyback on that, like that doesn't mean when you get lower power charging that you're not getting what you need. I think that's kind of what we always try to base this off of is driver's needs and making sure that they get exactly the, the, the power back that they're going to need to get through their day. Right? It's not about filling up 300 miles in one sitting. Like Most people don't need to do that on a daily basis. What most people need is about 40 to 60 miles overnight. That's it. And so that can easily be covered by a level one and then obviously covered by a level two out. Okay. In our pre-interview, Nicholas, you said that one of your angel investors or advisors in your previous company they challenged you to use a level one charger for what, two months, right? That was like six months. Um, and I was commuting pretty far actually back then. So we had just moved into where I live now, right before the pandemic, about a year. And I was still working at my last company, which had an office in East San Jose. And so I was doing about 60 miles a day uh, in my Model S from 2013. So not the most efficient EV either. It's a larger EV. So it uses about 380 watts per mile. Um, and so I was charging on a level one outlet for that. And in those six months, I was fine. Like I had no issues. Um, I would be home long enough throughout the day, about, you know, 10 hours at home after work that the next day I was fine. And on weekends, yeah, I did road trips. So I would DC fast charge, but by like Sunday night, I'd get home, plug into the 120 outlet. And by Monday, I'd have the miles I need to get to work and then come back and do it again. And by it's, it's the th- what I learned was it's not so much a, a topping up, it's about being that positive. So maybe like one night, I might not actually reach my charge limit. It didn't charge fast enough. Level one is very slow, but like that isn't a problem by the end of the week because at the end of the week, I'm back to my 80% because I 
you, you kind of think about it differently than saying filling up. And that's, I think, something that people have to get comfortable with. Now, with our L2 outlet, the NEMA 620 plug, that's what I currently use every day for the last year and a half. Um, and I've, that is the, I don't think I'll ever come across the time. Like I can fill my car up within like a night with that thing. So from like zero or 20 to 80% easily within 10 hours. And so the rationale behind that is it's 15 miles per hour of charge versus five miles per hour of charge. But the beauty behind that product and why we created it was we realized that it doesn't cost any more to install. So unlike a level two charger, which costs like to say $700, $800 to $1,000, $200 mostly, sometimes $3,000, depending on what company you go with, for like the box on the wall with the cable, this costs the same as a level one outlet to install. And the product costs us the same to make. So it's like a $40 difference to install a level one outlet versus installing a NEMA 620 level two outlet. And with your customers, uh, what are they? What are they looking at? Your customers. I mean, I guess you have two customers, but with the apartment owners so, and managers, which one do they like to choose? We have um, one kind of customer, right? We have we have one that we have to you know get buy in for, just like the drivers would, and the other one is we have to make sure drivers are happy with our solution, but they're kind of captive after it's been installed. So, um, yeah, that's so true. we're it's playing that balancing act, like. That, that's the reality. So our main customer is the property owner, first and foremost. And we don't, we're not going to hide that. Like that's who we're convincing to buy our product. Um, in general, the, there's a caveat here. If they're paying out of pocket, they almost always install the NEMA 620 plug because technically it doesn't cost any more to install. And so like that's the benefit. The only other potential downside is that it services less people. So it's about double a level two 40 amp charger and it's about half our level one. So to put that into numbers for, let's say a level two charge point charger, that services one person. Our NEMA 620 plugs service two people. For that same 40 amps, you could service three people on our level one outlets. And so like, it really comes to a question of like, how are you gonna break up your panel capacity? And so there is a value to mix and matching is what I call it. So like as a company, you're thinking specifically of our products today, we look at like, how do we become the charging provider for multifamilies that meets that gamut. And so we're not going to just stop with these products. We have future roadmaps to keep adding and making that better. But the idea is that you can install our product line across your portfolio and you could meet every need in that building. So you could install some level of level ones that, you know, some people don't commute as far every day and that's what they use. And then you can install some level twos and that becomes the you know, people that commute further. And you do that and you end up saving money, servicing more people and the drivers win because they get what they actually need, not what they think they need. And they get that convenience is what I call it of overnight charging, which is honestly the best part of an EV. I love the fact that I haven't had to go to a gas station. Well, I did have to do it recently because I, I switched cars with my girlfriend. But like in general, I haven't had to do that in like a year. And so I never think about it as a chore. I just get up every morning and figure out where I need to go and jump in my car and I know I'm going to get there. And, and for the most part, that's just like a completely life-changing way of interacting with your vehicle versus like once a week, I have to figure out when I'm going to stop or if I'm running late. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I used to have it all the time. Running late. It's always when you're running late, you're like, oh, I'm out of gas. I need to find a gas station. So that like convenience that people that don't have at-home charging goes completely away, which is a, a huge downside to owning an EV. Now I'm looking for that public charger, that DC fast charger to spend 25 to 45 minutes at, sometimes two to three hours at, once or twice a week to keep my car topped up 
versus the idea of topping up every night while you're sleeping. Yeah, and I think there's actually a super easy analogy to go with that and something that we all kind of are used to, and it's our cell phones. Right? Like all of our smartphones, we don't wait until it's at zero to then plug it in. We just do it overnight. Uh, and because the car is actually being used a lot less than your phone, you don't need to charge it nearly as, as much or as long as a, a cell phone. I know people burn through their cell phones a lot. And they're like, oh, I have to charge that up multiple times a day. I'm like, well, that's because you're using it all day long. Most cars sit in the parking space idle for 90% of their lifetime. So it's not as though they don't have to be just sitting in a spot plugged in. Uh, so I think if people start to think of it in that respect, it's very easy to wrap your head around like exactly how we're, we're tackling this charging issue. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very good example. Thank you for that. Um, so, I can I can hear people, even though nobody's listened to this yet besides us. I can hear people asking, "Well, what about workplaces?" I my kid, her uh, friend, lives next to Intel, and I had to go pick her up this morning, uh, so they could have a play date here. And I was surprised to see that the Intel facility, the parking lot was absolutely full. And I have a couple of friends that work at Intel. I know people who have family that work at Intel. It's a big thing where I live. Um, is, is this go like, can you, can you, somebody approached you that owned a business, would you be interested in working with them or no? Uh, 100%. So we actually, when we built this product, looked at the places where it'd be good and workplace was one of them. Again, I started this company in 2020, like a month in COVID hit and everybody was told to work from home. So that really dried up as a sales channel pretty fast. So we just haven't approached it, right? We're, we're, we're still a small startup um, and we had to focus our energy on what sales vertical that we thought would be the most valuable. To also caveat that, we also have a thesis around this. So at home charging is still more important than workplace charging because it's more consistent to our lifestyle. And of like, you you could have our product and not have workplace charging at home and be completely fine. When you have workplace charging, it's kind of making you reliant on going to work every day, which we've now seen over the last two years of COVID, people are really not wanting to do um, and isn't becoming the norm. It's becoming more of the exception. So that's why our focus has been on multifamily is it fits our thesis. It hits the target market we really think is the most impactful but if somebody, you know, like Intel wanted to install a thousand outlets at their parking lot, we wouldn't stop them. We'd help them. Right. I, I would imagine, Joseph, this would go well with fleets, too, because if you're like a, an electric utility company or whatever, and you have a fleet of electric cars or the city of Tempe has a whole fleet of electric cars, you need somewhere to, you know, an affordable way to charge those vehicles. Uh, potentially it could work well with fleets. Uh, I think the thing with a fleet vehicle operator is they do have a little bit different uh, needs than say an apartment community. We are, we do actively have something that we're working on that does work really well with fleets. Um, we're not ready to talk about just yet. <laughs> if but, you're a fleet uh, owner and you want to learn more about what we're working on, reach out and we're looking <laughs> for fleet owners that want to pilot some of our future products. Right. Uh, but yeah, there are dif there are different needs for different scenarios. But overall, the answer is yes. Like it, it can work for fleets, but we have like a better, much better solution for that. Okay, because I I know a guy um, in Ohio. He used to listen, or maybe he still does listen to the show. I haven't heard from him in a while. But he owned a painting company, and he ordered ten cyber trucks when you could order the cyber truck because he's like, I'm tired of paying for all of this fuel. So I don't know. I don't. I think he ordered the mid tier cyber truck. And he just ordered 10 of them because it makes the most amount of sense for his business, right? Um, um, that's going to be I'm common. sure maybe he switched. 
Yeah, it's going to become common, especially with the F-150 rolling out. Um, I think the also caveat this, there's a lot of consumer cars coming out right now. Like your Model 3 is the best selling, Model Y is the next best selling EVs. And then now this year we're seeing more bolts, Leafs coming back in with a better product. So like that's been the target market where you could see EVs showing up because they're being sold. Fleets also still don't have vehicles. Like the vehicles that are being sold in the fleet section are promises that haven't been delivered yet. So example like Rivian, they have huge deals with Amazon. They haven't delivered that many vans to Amazon yet. And that's not a uncommon problem. So coming back as a charging company, looking at the market and going where we're going to go, there's no question we will go into fleets, but we think it's still really early and there aren't really vehicles there to service. So what you end up doing is you end up selling this product that sits around while you could have been making the product better over that time um, to meet the demand and things changing. Like the, We don't even have data really on how Ford F-150s in a fleet will need to be charged and operated and what their daily utilization will look like because it's going to be very different. Fleet vehicles are treated a lot different than like a personal vehicle commuting or doing chars or taking kids to the school or going to play dates like it's a very different vehicle behavior than say like somebody who owns a paint company who's got 25 trucks driving around all day picking up dropping off supplies and then there's a cost side to it so like there's a very different need and we are definitely going to fit into that need at some point but there's also a lot of charging companies that are already in that need so i think that's a also interesting competitive space so where we really set ourselves apart is the multifamily. okay and then you mentioned that if uh, somebody wanted who who owned a fleet and they wanted to beta test some stuff with you, what if somebody who's listening manages an apartment or owns apartments? How, how did they get a hold of you? Well, our website's the best place to get hold of us. Uh, we have contact forms all over it. Uh, so you can reach out and schedule a meeting on our homepage. You can contact us there and we'll get back to you pretty timely. Excellent. And then... Um, during our pre-interview, I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit. Sorry about that. During our pre-interview, we talked about some scenarios where you could use clean energy uh, for your outlets. Can you explain how that's done? Yeah. So in certain markets, either one of you, we uh, when we have data on like repeatability. So what's cool about where we install is there's a very structural behavior pattern behind people charging cars, and that means we have data every night on how many people are using how many kilowatt hours on average. And so we can source energy through, uh, it's like energy arbitration in the energy markets in like California and Oregon right now are the only two we're certified for to buy energy to put on the grid at those times from clean resources such as like hydro or solar. So we could technically buy like solar during the day knowing we're gonna need 2.4 gigawatts. I like that number, by the way, a little back to the future reference, but like some large amount of energy across that grid that night and so the way energy works is like you just have to buy it for the time you're going to use it and so we can buy that energy and offset it to put it on the grid and store it somewhere or pay it and there's a whole system designed in the energy market to do that and so we like i said it's not in every market but we can actually offset and you will know that the energy charging your car is clean it's coming from a renewable source like hydro um, solar or wind awesome joseph do you have anything to add not on that topic. No, I think Nicholas has that one pretty okay. much locked down. <laughs> so, uh, Joseph, from what I gather, you're more of like the the business side, and Nicholas, you're more of like an engineering side. Although you you got to wear multiple hats, especially in a small company and being a founder. So, like, it's not taking anything away from you, Nicholas. But <laughs> I'm happy to be an engineer. That's when I, I, it's a thing I actually love. So. <laughs> 
I mean, of the two jobs, I'm pretty sure he can do both. And I definitely can't do the engineering work. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I've tried being a business owner. It's not a lot of fun, honestly. Uh, so I would just rather be a drone, but not that you're a drone. I'm not insulting you. I'm just saying for me, uh, I don't like the, uh, I don't like the business side of things as a general rule, but is there, I'm digging a hole. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think is important from a business perspective or from a customer perspective? No, I think we've really talked about a lot of the issues here in sort of this. And I think it always ties back to something that we'd like to talk about is EV equity. And I think that's kind of the thing that our company is really focused on is making EV access equitable to everyone. And I, and I want to bring this up because it's something that actually just recently happened and, and it's been talked about a lot is like, we've been seeing like people thinking about let's put more DC fast charging stations everywhere. And then that's the magic bullet. The problem is then solved. But the reality is that that doesn't solve all the problems. And in fact, for people who live in like an apartment or condos who don't have the ability to just like throw a, a charger on the wall real quickly, uh, it becomes a big issue and it becomes unequitable because those charging stations typically cost like three to four times more for the same energy. So if you're asking someone who lives in an apartment to say, go drive down to the local DC fast charge station, it's going to cost them three to four times more for the same amount of power. Plus they have to add that added inconvenience of going back and forth. And I think that's kind of where we come in and where we see our real value for people is that we can put these charging stations in. Are they the fastest in the world? No. Will they get the job done? Absolutely. And they'll make sure that your EV driving experience is exactly the same as if you live in a single family home. And that's really what we're trying to do. Actually, I want to I want to dive into that a little bit more because that's something that is really overlooked. So DC fast charging is great for road trips. Um, and a little background, like I worked at Tesla and I worked on this installing some DC and some solar and like worked across programs. It was a tiny company, well, growing company when I was there rapidly. But like the reality was, that wasn't ever really meant to be the end-all solution for charging. And if you actually go into the user manual of all these cars, especially Teslas, it says leave plugged in when not in use because it's the way to protect the battery. So there's there's the equitable side and there's the environmental side. And like a lot of EVs are being pushed as an environmental option, but batteries themselves have a payback period. They're more carbon intense to produce than a gas block, engine block. And so you actually have to drive a fair number of miles, I call it, before you hit the break-even point. It's only like, 40 to 50,000 for a Model 3 compared to a Toyota Camry to break even on carbon or like emissions. Let's just call it emissions because there's more than just carbon in that whole thing. But like the reality is that battery, the longer you can make it last, the better. And DC fast charging, there's no question. Like there is, it damages the battery significantly more. So there's the equitable side of like, in general, people who live in apartments usually make less than somebody owns a single family home. So they're more cash so let's say savvy in a sense, they have to pay more attention to what they're spending on expenses. And the analogy I really liked about the equitable side is if we expect these people to use DC fast charging versus like somebody who gets to charge at home overnight in a single family home, that's basically saying somebody going to the same gas station in the same corner of their neighborhood pays more or less depending on what type of house they live in. So if you live in the single family home, let's say you pay 250 per gallon versus like $5 per gallon if you lived in the multifamily. And that's kind of what we're doing right now with the charging infrastructure. So there's an equitable issue with that. Um, there isn't a clear solution. So like one thing we do, we do mark up the cost of electricity to do an ROI, but by being lower, we don't have to mark it up as much as say DC fast charging. And so you do get the cost savings as a driver still. 
and you didn't have to pay for what a single family homeowner had to pay to install that circuit. So you, you didn't spend the $1,000 or $2,000 to install a circuit to charge your car. You just have it in the property owner did and they pay it back. So that's, that's how we kind of justify that equitable markup. The other side of that is if we actually do continue down this road of DC fast charging as the main form of energy, again, user behavior. How are people actually going to use the systems we built? When they get off work and they own an EV and they have to use DC fast charging, let's use supercharging. We have the data on this. They go around 4 to 7 p.m., which is actually the peak time when all of our renewables are like turning off or solar or wind are dying down. So that means the energy is coming from dirtier sources. The energy is more expensive at those times because we're spinning up peaker plants in a lot of markets. We're trying to meet what we call like solve that duck curve. People are going home and turning on their TV. So that's actually the worst time to charge your car. So you're, you're now forcing people to charge their cars using this method fast at the worst time. So the most amount of energy to charge their car as quickly as possible at the time where everybody else is trying to use electricity. And it's also the dirtiest energy. We get like none of the benefits of an EV in a sense by taking that approach. And so that's why we, we stray away from that. We were like the actual approach is get people to charge between 10 and 7 or 10 a.m. Because that's when energy is the cheapest. It's when it's the cleanest, like could be the cleanest. Um, and it's very predictable versus now people getting off work to use DC fast chargers as their form of charging at the worst possible time to be plugging in. Yeah. And just to add one more, more bit on that, like those stalls can only service a car for about 30 to a minutes to an hour. Like that's the time it takes to charge or top up. Like, so you can only fit in so many cars within that time window. Whereas, and, no, and on top of that, they cost like what, $140,000 per station, yeah. a hundred thousand. Like if we're going to pretend it's much cheaper than it is, like that's something like we can install hundreds of stations for that. Right. And in these apartment communities, and we can cover a lot more vehicles. The, the energy's cleaner. Like there's a lot of benefits to lower power charging. Like, and no one's saying that DC fast shouldn't exist. We need it for road trips, emergencies. There's, there are use cases for it, but it's not a silver bullet. And to be using this as something to say, hey, well, apartment communities can have this as their like local gas station. That's just something that's simply not a good idea. And it does make EV ownership like a worse situation for those people. Actually, you have kids and you, and you probably, like, hopefully your wife has an EV and, and takes the kids around in it. Um, but the idea is like, I actually got feedback from a lot of women. And this was really interesting because I know this is going to be sound weird, but they actually chose to not own EVs after a period of time because they were like, one, I don't want to show up and have to deal with charging. Most of the charging stations weren't in what they called savory locations. They didn't feel comfortable as a single woman with maybe two kids in the backseat running around a parking lot at night without lights or cameras. They're usually tucked behind stores. That's how DC fast charging's kind of been installed to date. And so that was feedback we got from people that were looking to install our product at their home, at their apartment complexes, was they wouldn't own an EV again if they didn't have charging at home, even with DC fast charging, because they didn't feel comfortable using it. And my favorite one, this is the best quote, I would spend 35 minutes charging my Tesla at a supercharger and my kids would be running around the Target parking lot. And I'm just like, this is so dangerous. Like this, this isn't what I want to be doing right now. It's not the experience I wanted to have with this product. And so they got rid of it. And that it's kind of one of the problems we solve is we bring that problem and the kids are at home now. You're at home now. The car is just doing its thing. Like that's the convenience we're bringing with this solution. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a very good point. Like when I had my oldest, she went to Mexico for a month 
So I had her car here. And when I, I do the primary of driving around the kids, cause my work, my wife, she's got a nine to five job. I work 48 hours on, I'm off for four days. So I'm the primary one for doing that. But I had, I don't, I, I only have a level one charger here at the house. I have a 30 year old house. I was not getting five miles. I was getting three, if I'm lucky, four miles. And, uh, I have to, uh, you know, plug it in the ceiling cause it's the only outlet I have in my garage. It's just, a, it was just a whole weird thing, the whole thing. But, um, I, I can see where that would be problematic because there were times when, especially early on when I had the car, when I wasn't paying attention to how many miles were on it. And I, then I would have to be like, oh no, I, I need to find somewhere to charge. And around here, and we had this talk in the pre-interview, but around here we have a lot of charge point chargers. They just happen to be behind fences at uh, apartment complexes. So you can't access them, which is you know not really useful for me. Um, and over time after, you know, the 20 or so days that I had it after that, I just kind of figured out how to make that work at home and not have to worry so much about third with third party chargers and stuff like that. But it, it, there is a little bit of an education on a consumer side where you just kind of have to learn your lessons a couple of times, especially me before you can actually, uh, kind of set into a routine that's at, that works for you. Would you find that to be true or? Oh, a hundred percent. It's, it's a habit thing, right? Like it's a whole new way of fueling your car that that's just a behavioral learning thing. And if you're coming from a, a, an ice car, uh, internal combustion engine, you, you're going to have to rethink how your habits change. And hopefully if you have at home charging, it's a convenience, it becomes better, but it's not the case for a lot of people who lived in multifamilies. And we, that was one of the target demographics we did a lot of talking to is like people who owned EVs that lived in multifamilies. What was their experience like? What were they like? What they did not like? What were the problems with it? Even places that had EV charging, like ChargePoint, the experience wasn't good. So like we were talking with a, a large apartment complex here about their ChargePoint because their ChargePoint was full and people were complaining that people weren't moving their cars. And so like that became a problem. They were offering charging and you know, their ads, people would show up with their cars and be like, hey, I can't charge, there's not enough of them. And they couldn't really install more because they didn't have panel capacity and it's expensive. So that, that was like, just because the house charging doesn't even mean it's convenient. It's like very much so having access to charging where you, let's say you're assigned parking spot or there's enough of them by enough that you know when you get home, you can plug in. I think that's the habit we're trying to create versus the other habits we just talked about, which are not sustainable for the average person and will deter them from wanting to drive electric. They'll go back to ice cars or maybe plug-in hybrids, right? I do want to think about one more thing, though, that you brought up, which is uh, the most outlets that people think of for level one are slower than actually our level one outlets because we're 20 amps. Most outlets in your home are 15 amps. And so you would actually be getting like two to three miles of range. On our outlets, you would get five miles of range. And so like, that is the kind of slight difference between a commercial level one outlet that's 20 amps versus single family home 15 amp outlet. Um, just to kind of give you a little insight into that, why that happened. Um, and then one more thing, in all these user manuals, people say about staying plugged in. Most people that don't e drive EVs don't know this until they own one for a bit. But if you leave your car unplugged for a period of time, it actually loses range just sitting there. So let's say you did go charge up and then you got home and you spent the night, you'd actually wake up with less charge than you started with because the car consumes energy just sitting there, computers, connecting to the internet, whatever. Um, going on, a, let's say vacation, you're supposed to leave the car plugged in so you get back, it's not dead. Um, a good example of one of my favorite L1 outlets installed was the long-term parking at SFO. They just have outlets. 
And so you go to SFO and you go for a two or three day vacation, you leave your car plugged in, it's fully charged when you get back and it's super slow charging. You don't care, you're gone for two days. But that's actually the best thing you could do for the car versus just like leaving it unplugged in a parking lot, watching it drain. Well, awesome. Uh, I think we're going to end that there unless you guys have anything else you'd like to add before we go. No. Um, if you are somebody who lives in an apartment complex who owns an EV and usually DC fast charging, um, reach out and we'll try to help you get it to the point where you get that convenience we were just talking about. That's probably the last part I'd leave it. That sounds fair. So thank you very much, Nicholas and Joseph, for coming on and explaining how this problem is getting solved. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And we really appreciate the time you let us on here and uh, lending us your audience's ears to tell them why we're doing what we're doing. This is not the first time I've received this question. So having two people who actually know what they're talking about, not just me up here blathering, is really valuable to them for sure. Oh, we appreciate that. <laughs> well, I told you it was going to be fantastic, but wasn't that interesting? I just, I just thought it was a fascinating subject. And thanks again, Bodhi. And again, Everybody go over to your podcatcher of choice and find the Kilowatt Podcast with Bodie Grimm and you can hear more of his blathering. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet Podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSilla Castaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other NoSilla Castaways. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.